You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. The Pirate Planet by Charles W. Diffin Chapter 17 The little ship that Captain Blake had thrown with reckless speed through the skies over Washington, D.C., made history that day in the records of the Earth. None now could doubt that here, at last, was the answer that the world had hoped for until hope had died. Unbelievable in its field of action, incredible in its wild speed, but real nevertheless. The countries of the earth were frantic in their acclaim. Only the men who formed the International Board of Defense failed to join in the enthusiasm. They sat by day and night in earnest conference on ways and means. This little ship, so wonderful and so inadequate, it was only a promise of what might come. There must be new designs made. Men must learn to dream in new terms and set down their dreams in cold lines and figures on drafting boards. A cruiser of space must be designed to mount heavy guns, carry great loads, absorb the stresses that must come to such a structure in flight and in battle. And above all, it must take the thrust of this driving force, new and tremendous, of which men knew so little as yet, and then many like it must be built. The fuel must be prepared, and this alone meant new and different machinery, which itself must be designed before the manufacturing process could begin. There was work to be done, a world of work, and so few months in which to do it. The attack from the distant gun had long since ceased, and the instruments of the astronomers showed the enemy planet shrinking far off in space, but it would return. There was only a year for preparation. Captain Blake was assigned to the direction of design. An entire office building in Washington was vacated for his use, and in a few hours he rallied a staff of assistants who demanded the entire use of a telephone system that spread countrywide, and the call went out that would bring the best brains of the land to the task before them. The windows of the building shone brightly throughout the nights when the call was answered, and engineers and draftsmen worked at fever heat on thrusts and stresses and involved mathematical calculations and while owners of great manufacturing plants waited with unaccustomed patience for a moment's talk with blake the white sheets on the drafting boards showed growing pictures of braces and struts and curved plates of castings for gun mounts and ammunition hoists and the manufacturers were told in no uncertain terms exactly what part of this experimental ship they would produce and when it must be delivered if only we dared go into production said blake but it is out of the question. This first ship must demonstrate its efficiency. We must get the bugs out of our design, correct our errors, and be ready with a production schedule that will work with precision. Only one phase of this proposed production troubled him. The manufacture must be handled all over the world. He talked with men from England and France, from Germany and Italy and a host of other lands and he raged inwardly while he tried to drive home to them the necessity for handling the work in just one way, his way, if results were to be achieved. The men of business he could convince, but his chief disquiet came from those whose thoughts were of what they termed statesmanship, and who seemed more apprehensive of the power that this new weapon would give the United States of America than they were of the threat from distant worlds. From his friends in high quarters came hints of the same friction, but he knew that the one demand Winslow had laid down was being observed. The secret of the mysterious fuel would remain with us. Winslow had shown little confidence in the countries of the old world, and he had sworn Blake to an agreement that his strange liquids, that new form of matter and substance, should remain with this country. 
and swiftly the paper ship grew. The parts were in manufacture and were arriving at the assembly plant in Ohio. Blake's time was spent there now, and he caught only snatches of sleep on a cot in his office, while he worked with the forces of men who succeeded each other to keep the assembly room going day and night. There was an enormous hangar that was designed for the assembling of a giant dirigible. It housed another ship now, hardly a ship, yet it began to take form where great girders held the keel that was laid, and the duralumin plates and strong castings were bolted home. A thousand new problems, and innumerable vexing errors, the bugs that inhere with a new mechanical job, yet the day came when the ship was a thing of sleek beauty, and her thousand feet of length enclosed a maze of latticed struts, where ammunition rooms and sleeping quarters, a chart room, and control stations were cleverly interspaced, and above, where the great shape towered high in the big hangar, were the lean snouts of cannon and recesses that held rapid-fire guns and whole batteries of machine-guns for close range. Rows of great storage batteries were installed to furnish the first current for the starting of the ship, till her dynamos that were driven by the exhaust blast itself could go into action and carry on. And then— an armored truck that ground slowly up under heavy guard to deliver two small flasks of liquid whose tremendous weight must be held in containers of thick steel, and be hoisted with cranes to their resting place within the ship, and Captain Blake, with his heart in his throat through fear of some failure, some slip in their plans, Captain Blake of the gaunt-worn frame, and face haggard from sleepless nights, stood quietly at a control board while the great doors of the hangar swung open. At the closing of a switch, the current from the batteries flowed through the two liquid to go on in conductors of heavy copper into a generator that was heavy and squat and devoid of moving parts. Within it were electrodes that were castings of copper, and between them the miracle of regenerated matter was taking place. What came to them as energy from the cables was transformed to a tangible thing, a vast bulk of gas of hydrogen and oxygen that had once been water, and the pressure of the gas made a roaring inferno of the exhausts. A spark-plug ignited it, and the heat of combustion added pressure to pressure, while the quivering, invisible live steam poured forth to change to vaporous clouds that filled the hangar. The man at the control board stood trembling with the knowledge of the power he had unleashed. He moved a lever to crack open a valve, and the clouds poured now from beneath the ship that rose slowly and smoothly in the air. It hung quietly poised, while the hands that directed it sent a roaring blast from the great stern exhaust, and the creation of many minds became a thing of life that moved slowly, gliding out into the sunlight of the world. The cheers of crowding men, insane with hysterical emotion at sight of their work's fulfillment, were lost in the thunder of the ship. The blunt bow lifted where the sun made dazzling brilliance of her sweeping curves, and with a blast that thundered from her stern, the first unit of the space forces of the earth swept upward in an arc of speed that ended in invisibility. No enveloping air could hold her now. She was launched in the ocean of space that would be her home. Captain Blake, the following day, sat in Washington before a desk piled high with telegrams of congratulation. His tired face was smiling as he replaced a telephone receiver that had spoken words of confidence and commendation from the President of the United States. But he pushed the mass of yellow papers aside to resume his examination of a well-thumbed folder marked Production Schedule. The real work was yet to be done. 
It was only two short months later that he sat before the same desk with a face that showed no mark of smiles in its haggard lines. His ship was a success, and was flying continuously, while men of the air service were trained in its manipulation and gunners received practice in three-dimensioned range-finding and cruiser practice in the air. Above, in the airless space, they learned to operate the guns that were controlled from within the airtight rooms. They were learning, and the ship performed the miracles that were now taken as matters of fact. But production— Captain Blake rose wearily to attend a conference at the War Department. He had asked that it be called, and the entire service was represented when he reached there. He went without preamble or explanation to the point. "'Mr. Secretary,' he said, and faced the Secretary of War, "'I have to report, sir, that we have failed. It is utterly impossible under present conditions to produce a fleet of completed ships. You know the reason.' I have conferred with you often. It was a mistake to depend on foreign aid. They have failed us. I do not criticize them. Their ways are their own, and their own problems loom large to them. The English production of parts has come through, or is proceeding satisfactorily. But the rest is in hopeless confusion. The red menace from Russia is the prime reason, of course. With the Reds mobilizing their forces, we cannot blame her neighbors for preparing to defend themselves. But our program— and the sure invasion that will come in six short months, to be fighting among ourselves, it is damnable. He paused to stare in wordless misery at the silent gathering before him. Then, I have failed, he blurted out. I have fallen down on the job. It was my responsibility to get the cooperation that ensured success. Let me step aside. Is there anyone now who can take up the work and bring order and results from this chaos of futility? He waited long for a reply. It was the Secretary of War who answered in a quiet voice. "'We must not be too harsh,' he said, in our criticism of our foreign friends, but neither should we be unfair to Captain Blake. You do yourself an injustice. There is no one who could have done more than you. The reason is here.' He struck at a paper that he held in his hand. "'Europe is at war. Russia has struck without warning.' Her troops are moving, and her air force is engaged this minute in an attack upon Paris. It is a traitor country at home that has defeated us in our war with another world. I think, he added slowly, there is nothing more that could have been done. You have made a brave effort. Let us thank you, Captain Blake, while we can. We will fight, when the time comes, as best we can. That goes without saying." A blue-and-gold figure arose slowly to speak a word for the Navy. It is evident, by Captain Blake's own admission, that the proposed venture must fail. It has been evident to some of us from the start. It was a fighter of the old school who was speaking. His voice was that of one whose vision has dimmed, who sees but the dreams of impractical visionaries in the newer inventions, and whose reliance for safety is placed only in the weapons he knows. The naval forces of the United States will be ready, he told them, and I would ask you to remember that we can still place dependence upon the ships that float in the water, and the forces who have manned them since the history of this country began. Captain Blake had sprung to his feet. Again he addressed the Secretary for War. Mr. Secretary, he said, and there was a fighting glint in his eyes. I make no reply to this gentleman. His arm of the service will speak for itself as it has always done, but your own words have given me new hope and new energy. 
I ask you, Mr. Secretary, for another chance. The industrial forces of the United States are behind us to the last man and the last machine. I have talked with them. I know. We have only six months left for a prodigious effort. Shall we make it? For the safety of our country and the whole world, let us attempt the impossible. Go ahead on our own. Turn the energy and the mind of this whole country to the problem. The great fleet of the world can never be. Shall we build and launch the great fleet of the United States, and take upon our own shoulders the burden and responsibility of defense? It cannot be done by reasonable standards, but the time is past for reason. Possible or otherwise, we must do it. We will, if you will back me in the effort. There was a rising discord of excited voices in the room. Men were leaping to their feet to shake vehement fists in the faces of those who wagged their heads in protest. The Secretary of War arose to still the storm. He turned to walk toward the waiting figure of Captain Blake. "'You can't do it,' he said, and gripped the captain by the hand. "'You can't do it. But you may. This country has seen others who have done the impossible when the impossible had to be done. It's your job. The President will confirm my orders. Go to it, Blake.' End of chapter 17